0: Brothers and sisters, we are continuing our sermon series called The World's Greatest Sermon. Truthfully, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And we're going to be talking about uh, the blessings that Jesus gives in Matthew 5. Now, the word blessed uh, is used pretty frequently these days. Uh, You'll often see it uh, at the end of a social media post uh, with a hashtag, hashtag blessed. How many have seen that, know what I'm talking about? Okay, only some of you. So some of you non-social media people, when you, when you put a hashtag on something that's kind of giving it a category or a theme and you can click on that and see how people have used that same word in other posts. So you'll see this word, uh, hashtag blessed, on all kinds of pictures. You'll see a picture of somebody. Got a job promotion, hashtag blessed. Working out this morning, blessed. <laughs> Just sipping a cocktail, At this exotic resort, hashtag blessed. Reading my Bible with my latte, hashtag blessed. Just graduated with honors this weekend, hashtag blessed. Just ate some chicken wings at B dubs. (laughs) Blessed. (laughs) Is God really blessing these people? Is He really favoring them? In an article in the New York Times, Jessica Bennett writes, Calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposely elicit envy. Wow. I think it's safe to say people are confused about the term blessed. We're confused about the term blessed and what it means to be blessed. And if we're going to understand the entire Sermon on the Mount, we need to be clear about what Jesus means when he says, blessed, and who God really blesses. That's what this section on the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Traditionally, this section is called the Beatitudes, it's a Latin term for the blessings. Um, And as I begin, uh, I need to uh, give more credit than I usually do to my seminary professor, Scott McKnight. Um, you guys, if you know, if you've been listening to me for some time, you know I quote him all the time. But he has a great commentary on this sermon, uh, specifically on the Sermon on the Mount, and I've been going to it for a lot. So his, uh, his thinking has influenced much of what I'm saying this morning, and uh, I want to make sure I give him credit. So, but to begin, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean? Let me give you a few things. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessing comes from God. It comes from God. That means it is not simply luck or fortune, it comes from the Lord. It also means God's favor is upon you. His goodwill is towards you for your good. It is also future-oriented. It's about what God will do on your behalf. And this is very important because we often try to discern what God's doing with our current circumstances. And if we discern God's blessing based on our current circumstances, we might get confused. It's future-oriented. It's also conditional. His blessing is on those who truly love Him and others in their hearts. And it also reverses the curse. Remember, we go all the way back to the beginning when God created. He blessed humankind, but then the fall came and the curse came into the world. So when God is blessing, He is often at work reversing the curse of our broken world. So often, God's blessing will also reverse our expectations because it's going, to, it's going to fall upon broken, hurting people who need His blessing. McKnight says a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. So who is really blessed. How do we know if God is blessing us? Well, if you were, again, to scroll through social media, or if you were to ask maybe many Christians, I think you would hear these types of things. These are the blessings we typically think of. Those who are blessed are those who are well-off and have high-paying jobs, those who have nice homes, nice things, drive nice cars, those who get to travel to wonderful places, those who have tremendous athletic or academic achievements, those who see their politics favored in society, those who have several kids and live in the suburbs, those who know a lot about the Bible and have a quiet time each morning. We could go on. These are the things that people consider God's blessings. But we have to ask, are these truly signs that God is blessing and favoring these people? Because here's the principle you need to understand, especially with the Beatitudes. Calling one group blessed implies, at least, that the opposite group is not. So if people don't have nice things, if they don't get to go to nice places, if they don't achieve athletically or in business or academically, then that implies that God maybe has not blessed them. That God's favor is not upon them. And that's not true. We know that, right? So who does God really bless? Who is favored by God? This was an important question for the people in Jesus' day as well. Many thought that if they obeyed the whole law, then they would be blessed by God. They also had the mindset that wealth measured blessing by God as well. So who does God really bless? Well, it really comes down to three categories in the Sermon on the Mount. The humble, poor, and oppressed. Those who pursue righteousness and justice. And those who make peace. So we're going to go over these categories. So the first category is this. God blesses the humble, poor, and oppressed. Now, this category covers the first three Beatitudes. We're grouping them in three. Uh, But really, uh, they're foundational to the rest. And many scholars understand that Isaiah 61 stands behind these first few Beatitudes and really, I think, influence all all of them. And if you remember, in Luke's Gospel, before Jesus gives this sermon... Jesus quotes Isaiah in the synagogue to give uh, a foundation to his ministry. And he quotes this from Isaiah 61. Let's put it up on the screen. There we go. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And you remember that Jesus controversially said, this is now fulfilled and you're hearing. This is his mission. This is his kingdom coming on earth. Favor to the poor and especially to those who were oppressed and dominated by others. So according to Jesus, this is foundational. This is essential to understanding his kingdom, vision, and work. Good news to the poor and downtrodden are essential. And so that brings us to the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's favor is upon the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it is interesting, I told you that Luke has uh, another version of this sermon. And in Luke's version, he only has the phrase, blessed are the poor. So we have to ask, has Matthew spiritualized Luke's sermon, uh, or Jesus' sermon? And the answer is No these should be seen as one and the same. The poor in Jesus' day, really in all days, they were without resources. They did not have the power to change their situation and they could easily be taken advantage of and oppressed by the powerful and the rich. So they had no hope. They had no hope for anything to change in their life and they had to put their trust totally in God. And even today, we often see a connection between poverty and dependence on God. It is often the case that the poor of the world and the poor of the church and the, and the body of Christ, they're often much more God-centered and faith-filled than those who are well-off. And Jesus' kingdom promises a reversal of fortunes for the poor who trust in God. The poor are blessed. This is the opposite of what we typically think. As we said before, we assume that the blessings of God are on those who are well-off, who have nice things, who drive nice things, who go to nice places. These are typically the blessings that we give thanks to God for. We thus communicate that God is favoring the rich in that lifestyle. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And that implies, as Jesus will say explicitly in Luke's sermon, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Remember, blessing one group implies The opposite and so jesus says that explicitly in luke's version so the blessings we often give thanks to god for if we use them for our comfort and our luxury they become not a blessing but a liability on the day of judgment see it wasn't making money that was the problem it was the way that the resources were being used and that's what god will judge The extra that we've been given, they're meant to be a blessing to others, to relieve the discomfort of the Lazaruses who sit beside our doorway just hoping a crumb will fall off our full tables. God's favor will not be upon the comfortable rich, but upon the poor in spirit. The second blessing Jesus gives is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, The interpretation of this beatitude depends upon what people are mourning about. So let's go back to Isaiah 61. It's our context. It says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Look at that. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. So, what are these people mourning? They're mourning the devastation of their people. They're mourning the devastation of exile and foreign domination and the resulting poverty and despair that came with it. They mourn for their people, and they long for God to come in and comfort them to bring justice and healing and hope. Uh, N.T. Wright Really, kind of became famous because he, for many reasons, but because he described how in a gen, there was a general sense in the time of Jesus that people were not out of exile yet. That although the people had returned from Babylon, although they had returned to the land, the exile was not over because the Romans were still in charge. And the heavy taxation and the foreign domination made life extremely difficult, especially for the poor. So people were suffering. Economically. But others were fine with the Romans in charge. In fact, they were profiting off of it. They were growing wealthy with the Romans in charge. They were happy about that. Life was comfortable for them. But others mourned for the suffering of others. And that's who God's favor is upon. God sees their mourning and He promises to answer the longing of their hearts. And conversely, those who don't mourn over the suffering of their community will more than likely not experience the blessing of God. And I want to bring to you uh, something from a different context that I think applies to this situation. It's from the prophet Amos. And he kind of says a similar thing that Jesus is saying, but in the opposite terms. Amos says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. That's in uh, northern Israel. You lie on beds adorned with ivory, lounge on your couches, You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, over God's people. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Ouch. Amos must have been a hard pastor to hear. Wow. Wow. In that time, God judged the people who did not mourn over their community's devastation, over the suffering of others, while they themselves were comfortable. But God's favor is on those who mourn over suffering, oppression, and injustices themselves or others' experience, and God will comfort them. The final beatitude under this section is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek are the gentle. They don't use their force to get their way, whether that be violence physically or whether that be the force of their arguments or complaints. There is the meek gently trust in God, and they practice nonviolent, gentle resistance to the injustices around them. They are the opposite of the zealots in Jesus' day who wanted to set things right by violently taking back land and violently taking back their community from their foreign oppressors. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. And this beatitude is actually rooted in another scripture. I know I'm giving you a few scriptures this morning, but hang with me. These are important for understanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus is basically taking this from Psalm 37. And it says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath, do not fret it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. you See that? A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. See how Jesus is taking the tradition of the, Isra- of the Scriptures of Israel? And he's incorporating them. And He is saying that those who are meek are those who refrain from anger, from wrath, that even though they are mourning over the devastation of their people, they are not fretting about what to do about those who are causing the suffering. They know that God sees it, God will take care of it, God will judge, and God wants us to be meek, to be gentle and submissive towards others. But we need to know that meekness is also not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. One thinks of how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi, they put into practice the teachings of Jesus. And they said, we are insisting upon it. We are making this foundational to our movement that we will not retaliate, that we will not be violent, and we'll be submissive to whatever happens to us. That's meekness. Meekness is not weakness. And in the Old Covenant, we just read it in Psalm 37, God promises the meek the land of Israel. But in the new covenant under Jesus, that promise is enhanced to the whole earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, being poor, mourning, or being weak doesn't mean we ought to do nothing about all of the brokenness we see around us, but quite the opposite. This is the second category of people God blesses, those who pursue righteousness and justice. These are the people who see what's wrong and broken in the world and in others and they want to do something about it. And they pursue restoring God's shalom, his vision of a renewed world, his peace, the way he intends things to be. So our first beatitude under this one is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Filled. Now, Luke's version also just has, blessed are those who hunger. Has Matthew, again, spiritualized? Not really. Because those who often know hunger and know true thirst, they will have an overwhelming desire to help others be alleviated of that suffering. Now, we don't feel true hunger and thirst very much in our society. But the words here, this is is a, a powerful sense of hunger and thirst that overwhelms all other desires in order to see the longing fulfilled. And so what is this person, what is this hungry, thirsty person seeking? Well, Matthew's version says righteousness. Now, in the Greek, this is the word dikaiosune. And it can be translated in English as righteousness or justice. It can be translated the same. And I just I just wonder how different Christians would feel about justice if every time dikaiosune is used in the New Testament, it was translated justice instead of righteousness. Because often most translators choose righteousness. It's a very common word. So it would, I think it would make a huge difference because we tend to privatize the word righteousness. We tend to make it about personal holiness, private holiness. But righteousness, all throughout all the New Testament, it's always about right actions towards God and right actions towards others. It's always about making wrongs right. It means doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way at the right time. That's righteousness. It's justice. Simply put, justice is doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus said, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus had had a hunger and a thirst for God's righteousness and justice. And he said, that's my food. That is where my longing is fulfilled, is to do the will of God. That's what really fills me. We know that God's will covers many things, but it's generally clear. It means that we should hunger. We should long to love God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, and we should hunger to love people as ourselves. We should strive to do unto them what we would want them to do to us. But woe to those who feel little hunger for this justice. Then Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, of course, Jesus teaches us to be forgiving uh, towards others. Uh, but, but this word is primarily aimed at having compassion on those in need, in keeping with the theme we've been talking about. The best example of the merciful person in the teachings of Jesus is the Good Samaritan someone who was willing to stop, to interrupt their plans to ensure that someone in need was taken care of to the full extent that they needed even paying their bills. And when Jesus asked the expert the expert in the law after telling that story, story who was the neighbor out of the three? The expert in the law replies the one who had mercy on him. That's what this word is about. Mercy is the feeding the hungry giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, inviting strangers, foreigners, and immigrants in. Jesus taught it's the merciful who will be shown mercy. That's why in Matthew 25, he says, all you who did this unto me, the feeding, the clothing, the inviting, the welcoming, the hospitality, what you did for for them, you did unto me. That's why you will receive mercy as well and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. finally, blessed on this section. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. These are those who desire nothing else but to do the will of God and see his will accomplished. We ask this question. If God had his way in my life, what would he do? If God had his way with all that I do, what would he want me to do? And then we go about doing that. We find out what God wants us to do and then we do it. These are the people who pray, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Yes, on earth, but in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in all that I do. And as Jesus will say later in the sermon, they don't do these things because they want to be seen by others, but for the glory of God. They live for the glory of God, not for the glory of man. And the pure in heart are promised that they will see God. Pause on that. What a promise. This is something that most people in the Bible say is impossible. You can't see the face of God. You can't see God and live. But can we imagine seeing the creator of the universe, the one who dwells in unapproachable light? This is nothing less than the promise of everlasting joy and salvation in the presence of God. As the psalm says, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. What a prompt! What a promise. And finally, the last grouping of those who are favored by God are those who work for peace. God's favor is upon those who work for peace. The first one is this, is blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. McKnight says the peacemaker, peacemakers haven't, Have an active entrance into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace. Have you ever considered that more than one time? I think it's four times in the New Testament. The New Testament calls God the God of peace. The God of peace. It's interesting, you know, we we associate you know major words with God. And I think most people, you know, God is love. I mean, that's that's biblical. God is love, and that shapes our behavior. But what if we could incorporate more the understanding that God is the God of peace? How would that change our behavior in the world? If we fundamentally thought of God as the God of peace who is reconciling the world to himself and to one another. And if we want to be recognized as children of the God of peace, then we are to be peacemakers. William Barclay cautions us strongly on this in his commentary says anyone who divides people is doing the devil's work. Anyone who unites people is doing God's work. Wow. I mean, most of the ethical instructions that Paul gives in the New Testament, they're about making peace in the body of Christ. This is why we see warning after warning. Woe to those who have division, discord, gossip, slander, fits of rage, factions, selfish ambitions, things that break up relationship. These are the works of the flesh. These are the signs that the devil is surely at work. But God is at work when we do things that make for peace. We can trust His Spirit is prompting when we move towards peace. And finally, we're going to take the last two together. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I wasn't sure that I immediately agreed with Scott McKnight when he put this, this outline together and lumped these under the heading of working for peace. But as I thought about it, Jesus is saying, God's favor is upon those who are suffering For righteousness and justice and for living for him. And it may seem to themselves and to everybody around them that they are in fact losing. That God's blessing is not upon them because they are being rejected. They're being persecuted. They're being insulted. God, where are you? But because what Jesus says here, his followers who are persecuted or insulted, they can choose now, and listen to this, They can choose now not to retaliate, but to rejoice. Oh, what a transformation that brings. When we can know that we are blessed by God when these things happen to us. And now Jesus gives us the resource to turn the other cheek, to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us. Because I can choose not to retaliate, I can choose to rejoice. And that brings peace. Because I don't have to get even I don't have to take revenge I can turn the other cheek and I can work for peace so in summary who does God bless who are the hashtag blessed people of the world those who humbly depend on him those who pursue righteousness and justice for others those who work for peace humble just peacemakers that's Jesus' kingdom vision and on the other side of the cross, we recognize that Jesus lived and died for this vision. He died so that we could live these things out. He was poor. He, was, he mourned over his people. Remember, he wept over Jerusalem. He lived meekly. He hungered and thirsted, thirsted for justice. He was merciful to all in need. Anybody who came to in need, he helped. His heart was totally pure. And all that he did, we can't say that about any other leader in history. He brought peace everywhere he went. Jesus died and rose again, friends, so that we could live like he did. May God's blessing be upon us. Amen.